Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, people, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. For incarcerated people and their families, access to free communication and education can change everything. My guest today, Emilio, co-founder and CEO, Uzoma, who goes by Zoe, or Chingua, has broken the prison industrial complex one letter at a time. Since co-founding Emilio in early 2020, and that would be right in the middle of the pandemic, we'll talk about that, this technology software company has become the nation's first prison communication platform that's free for families. I'm gonna repeat that, free for families, and we're gonna interrogate that a little bit more. With the mission to free incarcerated individuals from financial exploitation and empower them to chart their own paths towards successful re-entry from day one. Zoe, welcome to Brand on Purpose. It is great to have you on the show. I'm excited to be here. Thanks so much for the opportunity. All right. So what were you thinking? Launching a startup, even though it's an amazing startup, in the middle of the pandemic, and tell us a little bit about Emilio and also the history behind the name. Yeah. So let's take a step back and take the last question first and then just kind of give you a the background as to how Amelia was founded and what it was like launching it in COVID. So Amelio is, you know, derived from the word ameliorate, to improve, to make better, and to heal. And that's what my company is trying to do. We looked out into the prison system and saw that there's a lot of damage being done. There's a lot of predatory companies. They're exploring vulnerable families in a really tough time. And there's also a dirt of vital resources that are being provided to folks on the inside to help them succeed post so basically, what we're trying to do is leverage the power of technology and software to be able to provide incredible products to families who are struggling to stay connected with their loved ones and also offer educational resources that's going to help incarcerated people rebuild their lives and succeed post-release. So the origin story is a personal one, but also a moral one as well. So growing up, I was born in, in Chicago, Illinois, and moved back to Nigeria with my parents, where I would live for about eight and a half years before coming back to the States. We moved to Hartford, Connecticut at first, and then soon moved to West Hartford because my mom found out that they had better school systems. So she struggled. We struggled to get an apartment in West Hartford, and that's kind of where my journey in the U.S. began. So unfortunately, I had a lot of friends growing up who were incarcerated. You know, we lived very similar lives. We went to the same public schools, played basketball together on the same basketball teams, but our home lives were so drastically different. A lot of them came from single parent households. Some of them had brothers in prison, fathers in prison. So it was a much different home life. And unfortunately, that's what we see. We see these patterns exhibited in the prison system where poor folks from poor communities, folks from broken families are the ones filling up our system. So as a young man, that sparked my interest. I really wanted to understand what was going on in the system, You know what my friends were experiencing. And that really kind of catalyzed this journey to really trying to study mass incarceration and also build solutions to solve it. And so after undergrad, I went to the University of Cambridge to get an MPhil in criminology, where I was studying the history and causes of U.S. mass incarceration and exploring possible solutions. And at the end of my work, I was a little bit dejected. You know, I spent a whole year kind of looking at policy proposals, looking at the history of this problem, how it came to be. And I realized that the most kind of 
proactive or provocative reform proposals are really just kind of focused on sentencing and addressing the power of prosecutors. But the problem that, that we face is that our system is balkanized. We don't have one criminal justice system. It's better to think of it as 51 separate systems with each stakeholder's incentives. And so really trying to solve the, the issue of sentencing, you know, you have to solve it in each state and then that also at the federal level. Same with other kind of reform or legislative reforms. So while those are vitally important, it's incredibly important that we, you know, shrink the length of time people spend in prison. Folks spend much longer time in prison in the States than we do in comparable European countries. And we're not having better results. Folks are returning to prison at much higher rates than they are in, in other Western democracies. But my detection was really kind of lied in the fact that it seemed like not enough people were trying to solve the problem of how terrible the incarceration experience is and how idle and depressing and isolating that it can be. So a person usually spends about three years, an average of three years in prison and in a remote area. Most prisons are in remote rural areas, which makes it really hard for families to visit. Also makes it really hard sometimes to get access to educational opportunities because schools aren't readily close by. And so, you know, the more I read about the problem of mass incarceration, I started isolating areas where I thought we could solve problems at scale and not, you know, just piecemeal in different states. And so, yeah, I stumbled onto the issue of prison communications. I was reading uh, Prison Policy Initiative and Bread and Justice, just Vera, all, all the kind of leading publications. And the more I learned about the prison industry, the more I realized that it had to be fundamentally disrupted. So this is a very long-winded answer, but basically what we're trying to do, or the problem that really exists is that two companies, for the most part, dominate the prison communication space. And folks might be wondering, you know, why is prison communication important? You know, how expensive could it possibly be? But we research tells us that the more one stays in contact with their loved ones or the more connected they are while incarcerated, the much more they do post-release. And it's really intuitive, right? If your family and your community is who you're going to rely on post-release, if those bonds are severed, it's going to be incredibly hard for you to stay connected. Unfortunately, however, these two companies are, are charging really exorbitant fees to incarcerated people. You know, they recognize they have a captive market and several, about 39 Department of Corrections are actually complicit in getting revenue shares from these companies. So costs remain incredibly high because incarcerated folks and their loved ones have nowhere else to go. There's one company that's serving your prison. That's who you rely on. So our thesis is that rather than trying to plead for these companies to lower the cost of their services, we would just build an alternative platform that would be free and better. So that's that's kind of our motto, cheaper, uh, free and better products. So that's kind of how we got started with this. Wow. Okay. So uh, I have so many questions. It's interesting how you've reminded us all, because I think not many people realize that kind of like our voter system, our election system, or rather our national election system it is balkanized, right? There's 51 different ways that you can cast your vote. And that, of course, is being threatened right now and our democracy is being threatened by certain states and certain governors. And it is also interesting because there is retributive justice and there's also restorative justice. And I know that you're not getting into those issues, but you know, you found the space of inequity around communication and the importance of communication and staying in touch with your loved ones. Why now more than ever is this important? And, and, you know, I've had Just Leadership on the show. I've had Photo Patch Foundation on the show. You know, we've talked a lot about incarceration, incarcerated individuals, recidivism, restorative justice versus retributive justice, and also how the system is broken. I mean, if you just look at, you know, technical violations of parole to then go back to Rikers Island, 
which is, I know, jail, but 12 people died unnecessarily this year alone at Rikers Island, right? This is a huge, huge issue among a sea of huge issues, right? And your background's in criminal justice, like you said, and why specifically communications and why now? Why is it more important now than ever? Yeah, so communications, it's because if you think about it, communication is the foundation for pretty much all software, all products, right? You need to be able to communicate with an end user, you need to be able to communicate with someone. So for us, really, the communication platform is really just the foundation, is the beginning of a much more ambitious vision of transforming corrections. But we started with communication because the data is really clear. The more contact one has with their loved ones, the much better they do post-release. To go back to the, one of the earlier questions about how did we launch this with COVID and, and why now? So for us, we launched the first product in March of 2020 at the tail end of March. And we've been building it for a while. <laughs> that was right at the start. <laughs> exactly. Right at the start. And so we had much more thought out plans about how we would do beta testing. We would go to churches, we would go to local community centers and really try to tap into areas where folks, you know, there was high concentration of incarceration to get folks to try out the platform and, and give us feedback. But COVID hit and prison shut down all in-person visitation, which meant that families couldn't visit their loved ones at all. But also what you found was that, you know, even phone access was also severely curtailed because they didn't want folks out of their cells for the most part. So you had this horrible pandemic raging on the outside and also strickling into prisons and folks aren't able to talk to their family. So it was an incredibly dire moment. And so we decided we were gonna accelerate our launch we just started reaching out to you know different Facebook groups dedicated to loved ones of incarcerated people, started reaching out to the criminal justice organizations, and just a guerrilla scale approach, just trying to get as many people to hear about us as possible. And all we had was a web app at the time. It was a web app that allowed you to type up a letter, attach a photo, and send it. And, and we work with the third-party mailing API that basically routes and prints it on our behalf. And so that's how the, the first product worked. And the urgency of the moment meant that we really kind of had to launch quickly and get in the hand of users as soon as possible. So early, early days, we had an organization called Puppies Behind Bars on the show. And it's an incredible organization. They work with incarcerated individuals to train dogs to be basically service animals for vets suffering from PTSD as well as first responders. And these dogs are being trained for over two years, 95 skills. It's amazing. And the reason why I mention this is because I remember asking Gloria, who's the founder of the organization, how hard was it to work with these prison systems and these officials? Because they can be challenging as well. So how did you, no pun intended, break in to the prison to get them to support you in your efforts, especially when, and I, I say this almost irresponsibly, when they're kind of on the take because there are, there's revenue share here, right? So you're basically coming in and you're saying, hey, I know that you're going to sacrifice revenue share here, but you know this is the right thing to do. And here are all the reasons why. How did you do that? That's a great question. And so, yeah, there's both a moral and so we, we took both the moral and also the pragmatic approach. So early on, we were, you know, we had this letters platform. We knew we wanted to break in with video technology and e-messaging. And we started talking to different foundations and all of them were pretty much like, sorry, we can't fund this because we don't think you're going to get into prisons. The duopoly is too strong and there's these revenue kickbacks and DOCs are on the tape. And so we were nervous about that. And then we figured, you know, what? all we got to do is find one prison make that happen, and then we can scale from there. But we were pleasantly surprised to find that Department of Corrections are actually, a lot of them are proactively looking for solutions like ourselves. And so while, you know, there are 39 states that are getting revenue share, 
11 states. And then recently, Connecticut just joined. They've outlawed kickbacks. And Connecticut actually became the first state to shift the burden of cost from families onto the state itself. And so basically, our approach has been to kind of focus on those 11 states to start there where we believe there'll be early adopters because they don't have that added incentive of the kickbacks. But we were pleasantly surprised that the first place we launched is Iowa. And Iowa is actually a kickback state. So what you found was that you had a a very, very thoughtful executive director of corrections who looked at the problem and said, look, what are we trying to maximize for here? You know, just making a little bit of money to be able to pay for certain services, or are we trying to help incarcerated people succeed post-release? Are we trying to just warehouse folks, or are we trying to figure out a way to help rehabilitate? And so she jumped on it and they were really eager to work with us. COVID actually, you know, accelerated the adoption because, you know, there was no visitation and they were leveraging Google Meets for a little while, but it proved to be, you know, just not a long-term solution because it wasn't built for the correctional setting. So those, those were actually early adopters. So what we found was we were just looking out for folks who were creative, folks who had a, had a progressive mindset and then was looking to, to fundamentally change the status quo. We got connected with Dean Williams, who is the executive director of Colorado, and he long identified this as a major problem in his facilities. The lack of access to loved ones and high cost of these phone calls were really detrimental to not just you know the carceral experience, but also to folks post-release. And so, yeah, we were pleasantly surprised by just how willing those two states were. And then from there, we got, just got the ball rolling because one of the concerns from other DFCs was that we were a new player. We hadn't launched anywhere. But as soon as we got going in, in Iowa and were able to you know, start demoing the platform for other DOCs, we've gotten a lot of interest. And we have county jails calling us. We have actually just before this call, had a meeting with another uh, DOC to talk about our educational product, which I'm sure we're going to dive into later. But I, I wish I could say I could take credit for it and say, you know, we had this ingenious plan that allowed us to get access to prisons. But for the most part, they were willing participants. A lot of executive directors out there, they're public servants. And so they were willing to work with us. And and so once we take over those 11 states, we are going to start working on those remaining, or 12 states, we're going to start working on those remaining 38. And we think there's already momentum. Connecticut became a state that's paying for calls. Los Angeles, San Diego, a lot of major cities have shifted in that direction as well. So we think we are the inevitable solution. And it's just going to take us just keep talking along and, and building great products. How are you funding this? Yes. So we are philanthropically funded, but we're working on being self-sustaining. So our letters product, we give users, at first it was unlimited. We were a little naive. We, we, so let's get said unlimited letters at first. We really trying to you know, get the word out, but then we cut it down to seven and now it's two letters and postcards per week. And then we have other additional content that folks can send, pre-designed games, comics, you know, mental wellness exercises and things like that. And then we launch a gift store feature that allows folks to be able to, with the means, be able to purchase additional content that they can send to their loved ones. And so we're, we're about 50% break even on that product and, and are working on getting it to be break even. For a video product, we're actually already break even. We provide the DOC's software and they're, they're leveraging their existing hardware and someone to partner with us to purchase our, our hardware with custom casing. And so, yeah, so we were right now basically a fundraising, but we are working on being completely self-sustaining and, and don't plan to rely on, on philanthropy long term. So who in your mind should bear the cost? I mean, I know you mentioned there are certain families who have the means, but ultimately when it comes to this, who should bear the cost 
say three, four or five years from now, whether it's you, I'm sure there'll be other apps and other companies as well, but how should that work in your mind? Yes, I think the state should bear the cost. And I can understand why some folks might be a little unnerved by that. They might say, hey, you know, someone committed a crime, you know, why should we have to pay for them to remain connected? So to that, I have a pragmatic argument, which is that 95% of folks who are incarcerated are going to return to society. And so it's up to us to decide, do we want to completely deprive them from all contact, deprive them from any resources they can access and have them come back to society, you know, unable to ad- adequately reintegrate and then commit further crime. So there's just that kind of hard, honest look at the issue, which is that, you know, folks are going to come back. It's proven that more contact with families in, in your community means you're less likely to recidivate and less likely to commit crimes, which is crimes are expensive. It follows that in the long run, the states are going to save a lot more money by paying for the cost of communications. And with us, that's pretty negligible. And it just makes sense. But on the moral level, if we look at the way folks end up in prison and who ends up in prison, there was a recent Brookings study that used IRS data and incarceration data. And what they found was that eight years prior to incarceration, or 50% of folks who were incarcerated had no income for eight years before they're incarcerated. So no income, no work opportunity, And a year prior to incarceration, that number jumps up to 80% of folks who are incarcerated had no income. So what we find is that money, access to money, jobs, education, lack of access to those things are a major driver for incarceration. So if you're born in in a terrible zip code, in the low income zip code, is that your fault? And so kind of on that moral level, the cars are stacked against some people. And so I think we have to be, I think we certainly have to be um, tough. You know, we have to make sure that folks are, you know, go through the judicial system and, and adequately, you know, take accountability for their actions. But once they're on the inside, we either have the option of completely isolating them and throwing away the keys or giving them the vital resource and the support that they need to come back and be productive citizens that give back to their community. Well, and you mentioned earlier, growing up, you saw this firsthand with some of your best friends and other folks in your community. What do you think the difference was, I'm assuming, to be able to break pre-prison, right, pre-incarceration, what is it we can do better as a society to break that chain, break that cycle, right? Because there are lots of different ways to kind of approach this. I'm sure that you also had a very loving and supporting family environment, right? And you were empowered as an individual to be anything and everything you can be. And I'm sure that has something to do with it. But what else did you see beforehand growing up at the differences that could make a difference for society to be better at reducing incarceration in general, stopping it from happening to begin with? Yes. On these issues, I like to look at Raj Chetty's work, who looks at study social mobility and poverty. So I think at the core of this issue is simply poverty. You know, Chetty looks at the impact of um, low mobility zip codes and zip codes with a high ratio of single parent households and just how that impacts upper mobility and incarceration. What he finds is that if one lives in a zip code that has, you know, that's poor and also has high single parent home setup, they're much more likely to end up incarcerated. So as a country that right now that's wrestling with the issues of inequality, I think, you know, what we overlook is that there are so many different offshoots for having such an unequal society, right? That poverty, if you look at my friends' backgrounds on the surface, we all went to a pretty good public schools, but my friends were living on the border of Hartford and West Hartford and, you know, tiny apartments with their families and and just trying to struggle to make it. I lived in a house with two college-educated parents who always promoted college, and I didn't have those kind of added stressors and pressures 
that made it likely for me to not end up incarcerated. And so that's kind of how I look at the problem is that, you know, it could easily be me in my friend's position. You know, one in four African-Americans end up in prison at some point in their lifetime. And I always say this in, in fundraising meetings that, you know, it's much more likely that I would have ended up incarcerated than a Yale law student. So I think we need to really understand that poverty is the chief driver of mass incarceration. Of course, there are racialized policies and, and terrible laws that we've built along the way. But if you look at the rise of mass incarceration, it really parallels with the deindustrialization and the lack of labor market opportunities for folks with high school diplomas. And so once we kind of trap folks in a situation where they have no real legal opportunities for income, it makes criminality and crime much more likely to occur. So I think taking a step back and looking at, at how unequal our society is, I, I think will help us. At, at Amelia, we're trying to solve the problem after the fact, after the folks have been incarcerated and saying, here are educational resources, here is a college education, here is a job training opportunity for you to make sure you come out of prison ready to be productive right away. But we can solve this problem on the front end as well by redirecting wealth in areas that really need it, redirecting our resources to areas that they really need it. And I think we'd all be better for it. Yeah. And you alluded to this in the front end. And again, I'm not an expert in this, but I am knowledgeable enough to know that, you know, you and I driving the same car, running a red light and getting pulled over will have likely, unsadly, have dramatically different experiences with that member of law enforcement. Hopefully not going forward, but we have a lot of work to do there. And I'm sure that also impacts the front end and the volume of that 25%, like you said, that are incarcerated. Definitely. No, for sure. I don't want to un- understate the impact of kind of racialized policing or, or racialized laws, you know, the crack and cocaine disparities in the you know 94 crime bill and things like that. So that's vitally important. We have to address the unequal application of the laws to vulnerable communities and also an overlooked group or prosecutors. I think reform efforts need to really isolate just how critical prosecutors are. They're the ones that decide what to charge you with and how long what they're going to charge you with is going to be. And so, no, I totally agree. I think that, you know, the over-policing of African-American communities are a great driver of this problem. But then the conundrum that we experience there is these are in high crime areas policed will flock to those areas, right? Like we, we want to be able to protect citizens in those communities while some you know that's the conflict that arises is how do we make sure that police are conducting themselves comporting themselves correctly and without bias but also make sure that we are protecting families but i think the chief way to really solve this problem is to tackle inequality and poverty right you are helping in that the problem has already been created and you're trying to literally like you said ameliorate that problem right but it does take both ends now you're Correct me if I'm wrong, you're still in law school? Yeah, technically. (laughs) Okay. So you're getting your JD and your MBA at Yale at the same time. Yes, yes. I'm managing it. I have a great co-founder who carries a heavy load. And (laughs) and part of the reason I was drawn to Yale Law School, they told me at midweek that they're a flexible place. It's a place for you to figure out who you want to be and and to launch uh, projects. They told me about, you know, students that were running campaigns in Texas and flying up to take exams. So it's a great place. And they've been accommodating to me running a company full time while <laughs> trying to get my law degree. And the reason why I ask that is because, I mean, you are like this unicorn, right? So you're, you're understanding, you know, how to form and create a business, even if it's a public benefit, right? And at the same time, you're also 
layering on top of your criminal justice background, a better understanding of the legal system, because you mentioned prosecutors before, and I'm like, okay, that is ultimately where cases get tried, right, in the courts. So I just think it's so fascinating that you're doing all those things at the same time. I'm in awe of it. You're also very young, so that helps, I think. (laughs) You don't need as much sleep as us old guys. Can you talk a little bit about the educational component? Because it wasn't lost on me that when you were chatting earlier, it's not just the communication that's important, but it's also empowerment and education and knowledge so that when, like you said, what is it, 95% of these folks at some point do come out, you want them to not go back. We don't want them to come back. We want them to be productive, healthy members of society, right? Exactly. And I think it's fascinating that you're focusing on that. What Can you give me an example of the type of education or educational content that you're also putting in front of folks who are incarcerated so that they have a better shot at success when they leave the prison system? Yeah. So what we realized along the way was that resources are incredible, just like the the justice system, are incredibly balkanized and that a lot of the reentry work is left up to small nonprofits with very limited funding to be able to fill the role that the state should fill. And on top of that, a lot of these organizations have to rely on the same communication platform that is already tremendously expensive for families, right? So you're an educator and you're trying to talk to a student, you're going to call them on a on a phone and pay a ton of money, or you're a reentry org and you're trying to reach someone, you still have to use the same system. So our thesis was, you know, why don't we build a learning management platform that's created for the correctional setting and that can basically allow any organization, any college, prison education program, reentry organization to be able to scale their work into the prison system. And so basically the way that the service works is that it's customized for the correctional space. So so services like Canva and Blackboard can't work in prisons because the way that they're built, they allow for a lot of external communication, internal communication between students, and that's just not acceptable in the correctional setting. And on top of that too, those are complicated systems. So we really wanted to build a very, very intuitive platform that would allow someone who maybe haven't seen the internet or someone who hasn't, who's been incarcerated for many years to be able to easily use it and understand it. So basically it's a pathway. They, they log in, they're able to understand, they're able to decide, you know, what is it that I'm looking to get? Am I looking for vocational training? Am I looking for college training? Or am I looking for just skill, skill building? And so we're not a curricular provider. So what we do is we allow prison education programs and colleges who teach in the prisons to be able to leverage that platform to be able to do real-time education, to be able to grade papers, converse with their students. And then we also are in talks with groups like LinkedIn Learning and Masterclass about providing us access to, to their content to be able to provide it free to incarcerated students. So basically what we're doing is we're creating the platform through which various different educational providers and reentry organizations can tap into to be able to really scale their work and get access to the folks that really need it. And so we're planning on launching that platform in summer of 2022. We've been meeting with our organizations all across the country for the past six months, interviewing, doing a lot of user research and built out a prototype. And then now it's getting that ready and, and getting it launched in the summer of 2022. So you're providing hope, right? Because I can only imagine sitting in prison, hopeless doesn't even probably even describe what the feeling is like, but you're giving people hope for the future and tools and you're stimulating their brain like it has never been stimulated before so that they can focus on their future once they get out. Definitely. Exactly. Yeah. And there's a volunteer group called Mourning Our Losses. Mm -hmm. 
and they organized crowdsourced memorials for people who died living or working in U.S. jails, prisons, and detention centers during the pandemic. And they use your platform to find out about anonymous deaths that happens inside of these facilities. And they allow incarcerated people to write memorials for their friends who passed away behind bars. How much of an impact does this have in those who rely on inside communication? You know, do you think that this also sheds a light on some of the toxic jail environment in the U.S.? And if so, how? I know there's a lot there. No, definitely. I think that's a great question. I think one thing that's really overlooked is that our prisons and jails have become the largest substance abuse centers in the country. In prisons and jails, substance abuse centers? Yes. How? How is that possible? How does that happen? So if someone gets picked up for possession, someone gets picked up for drug use, they're ending up in prison. So there's this big crisis of the Marshall Project actually did a recent publication that showed that the rate of folks who are dying of overdose deaths in prison have skyrocketed in recent years. So that's just one issue that I wanted to highlight that just access to good healthcare, access to substance abuse treatment is difficult, especially in your remote jail or remote prison somewhere. But you're totally right. And I think the problem, oftentimes we get bogged down with kind of casting blame on wardens or correctional staff, but we give them a terrible situation to work with, right? Say you're a staff member at Rikers and you're overly, the prison is overly populated. You have two weeks of training you're expected to, you know, create order in a really challenging place with so many different problems. Folks have some mental health issues and substance abuse issues. So it's not to say that the prisons and correction staff are without fault, but we give them some of the most challenging jobs without, you know, great, great support. So I think we need to take a step back as a society and say, like, what do we want our response to crime to be? Do we want it to be retributive, as you mentioned, where part of the punishment is that, you know, you're in a horrific environment and, you know, you struggle for many years? Or do we want to say, look, crime is incredibly complicated. There are biological components, social components. There are a lot of things that go on. And so what we really want to do is deter crime as much as possible. And if that's the perspective, then we need to be a lot more thoughtful about how we run corrections, what corrections looks like. And, you know, a lot of folks will reference Scandinavian countries and, you know, some people might bite their eyes and say, you know, those are small, very homogenous countries. But it's important to note, though, that their prison system is a lot more humane and a lot better outcomes. You know, the recidivism rate in Norway is 11 percent, whereas in the U.S., it's up to 56 percent over three years. And so compassion, you know, depending on what angle you're coming from, one doesn't have to look at it as compassion for incarcerated people. They can look at it as simply a pragmatic thing to do in order to reduce crime and and to save money. And other people who are more kind of morally inclined, uh, certainly definitely have a strong case to be made that we have a moral responsibility to our fellow citizens, even in their worst moments, to be able to help them redeem themselves and become productive citizens. How long had this idea for Emilio How long had it been percolating in your obviously very large brain? (laughs) I mean, I know that you met your co-founder over a cup of coffee in New Haven. At least that's the story that I've been told. His name is Gabriel Sarahashi. Why did you want to start it with him? And how long have you been thinking about this? How did it all come together? And I ask because, one, people are typically fascinated by these kind of founders, Provence stories, you know. But also, I've long said that, you know, ideas don't just show up at 6 p.m. one night and at 10 a.m. the next morning, boom, you have a company. Like they take a long time to percolate and to evolve and to refine, right? And marinate and, and whatnot. Yeah. So I came upon the idea right at the tail end of my 
MPhil in criminology. I was reading, as I mentioned, you know, prison policy initiative and things like that. But I didn't have a technical background at all. I was a philosophy major undergrad, and then I knew I was going to law school, and then I had a MPhil in criminology. So definitely not, didn't have a technology background. And so basically what I did was came up with the idea around 2016 and reached out to some folks I knew in my networks that were technical, that built apps and worked for technology companies. And I kind of pissed them the idea like, hey, would it be possible to, you know, build out a lettuce platform that allowed anyone around the country to, you know, search for an incarcerated person, send them a letter and they'll get there and, and they can track it. I'm like, what would that look like? And so just started kind of brainstorming with folks and started understanding how feasible it was. And once I realized it was feasible, what I wanted to do was just do my due diligence figure out you know, what business model would work, what ideas we would have to kind of entice different correctional actors, just kind of trying to do what I could without a technical background to lay the foundation to make this happen. And then once I started up at Yale, I knew I needed a technical co-founder. You know, I've been reading a lot about technology companies and you're always hearing about, you know, you need someone to share the grind with. You need someone who is in the tough days is going to be there with you in the trenches. And on top of that, I also needed someone that was technical who could supervise kind of the product roadmap while I worked on the vision and fundraising. And so what I did was just kind of looked out, just started looking for students at Yale who had worked for built um, more socially conscious apps before or had volunteered at different organizations. And there was a group on campus where that was the case. They get together and they work with nonprofits to build technical solutions. So I was really, Gabe caught my eye. I saw that he had worked at Facebook, which is obviously the largest communication technology in the world. And he had actually run some, founded a nonprofit back in Brazil. So I just reached out to him and said, hey, man, this is my idea. I'd love to grab coffee and talk about it. And, and we met at a local coffee shop in New Haven called Coffee with a K. It's a pretty popular <laughs> campus spot. And that's kind of, we hit it off. He's from Brazil. Obviously, I grew up in Nigeria. So we kind of had that kind of developing world perspective and we were able to really connect on that. And he had kind of been disrespected with working at really large technology companies because he felt the mission wasn't really aligned with what is best for society. He really wanted to build communications technologies that would improve people's lives. And so once we kind of had that mind melt, we were off to the races. We went to a local reentry organization here in, in New Haven called Emerge. They basically hire formerly incarcerated folks as construction workers and, and provide them therapy, find them childcare classes. So it was really exciting. And they had basically every month they would get 30 new incarcerated people. So it was a great place to go and, and research and to ask people questions to kind of understand just, you know, why was communication so important to them? We, we've read the studies and I've talked to friends, but we really kind of wanted to get it from folks who had just recently been incarcerated to hear their perspective. And one of our, our very first user, he used a very janky version of the app. His name was Richard Watkins. He told us that that we couldn't even imagine how important a letter was, that hearing the sound of a letter slide through your your door was the best sound you could imagine. And, and the one letter could last him up to a week because he would reread it and it gave a lot of hope. But then he also noted that, you know, around four or five o'clock in prisons are some of the most depressing times because so many people have lost contact with loved ones. So a lot of people don't get letters or get calls. And so that that really sparked our idea. We were like, okay, cool. We're going to start with letters. It doesn't seem all that disruptive. But we're going to start there, we're going to build that out, and then we're going to get into video calling and other solutions. And, and so there was to be some more religious how impactful letters is for families. You look at the review store, just 
a lot of folks are struggling financially and even 50 cents and even just the time to sit down and write a letter, it's just, they don't have it. So having an app that can allow you to do that really quickly, attach a photo and actually track it all the way to the facility to give you peace of mind has really given a lot of help and support to, to a lot of people across the country. Are you familiar with Grayston Bakery? I actually read about them recently. Yeah. So they're in New York. I had their CEO, Joe, on, and it's super cool because they do open hiring. And I think that's another component. And I'm just wondering now, maybe you can do some sort of partnership with them. They're really well known for the brownies they bake. That's in a lot of the Ben and Jerry's concoctions that you get at the store. And I just wonder whether or not there's an opportunity to partner with them where some of the folks who are incarcerated, especially as they near the moments of release, where they can start talking about, you know, opportunities to work again, right? Because I think open hiring is also a very powerful tool to kind of repatriate people back into the world outside of prison. I also feel like everybody needs to visit a prison and be not be in prison, but be inside of a prison. It was transformational for me to go to a correctional facility as a visitor, I should add. And it totally changed my mind. It changed my mind about the death penalty. It changed my attitude towards prisoners and the system. And I felt incredibly depressed. And I knew that I could leave. And I was very, very depressed. And it was the Bedford Hills Women's Correctional Facility. And I did this with uh, the Puppies Behind Bars organization. And it was transformative for me. And I'm a very progressive liberal guy. Up until then, everywhere except for when it came to people who are incarcerated. You know, like a lot of folks, I'm like, nope, they did something. They need to, they did the crime, they do the time. And it's not that I don't think that anymore, but I moved much more towards restorative justice and understanding that these folks are human beings. Whether or not you believe in God or not, they are God's creation. They're made in the image of God. They are like us and we need to treat them that way, even if they went wrong. And I appreciate that your organization and I'm amazed that you, so you also were able to get incredibly famous donors like former CEO of Google, Eric Schmidt, Twitter and Square CEO, Jack Dorsey. How did, how did you get these folks involved to be able to donate? <laughs> yeah. Or do you not want to share that? No, no, no. I can share. It's, I would say it's both bittersweet. You share their email addresses too and their texts? <laughs> I got you. I got you. I'll, I'll see yeah. it over after. <laughs> I will say that it's, it's bittersweet because, you know, being a founder, one thing you have to spend a lot of time is, is fundraising. And, you know, as a technology nonprofit, it's a rare thing. A lot of people aren't familiar with tech nonprofits. So trying to get funding is, is really hard. And I think I've benefited tremendously from the social capital I've been able to accumulate by going to schools at Cambridge and, and Yale. And so I always kind of lament at that fact that, man, like, you know, what if I didn't, what if I just went to UConn? You know, would I have been able to get in touch? Or maybe Amelia wouldn't exist just because people wouldn't have given me the time of day. So just wanted to surface that perspective for folks who are listening to think about, man, like to, let's take, let's look at the idea for what it is and not worry about the prestige of the person or where they're coming from. And if it's a great idea and you believe in the person, you know, take the risk and fund it. And it's something that we still struggle with just because, you know, Tech nonprofits are kind of a new animal. But with Jack Dorsey, honestly, it was DeRay. We're invited to his podcast, and I think it's pretty well known that he's close friends with, with Jack Dorsey, and Jack was setting up his Start Small initiative, and DeRay just made an intro for us. So it wasn't any kind of fundraising wizardry or anything on my end. Luck is a little bit of it, right? <laughs> I mean, the right time, right place. I mean, it's okay. It's all good. Exactly. Listen, the power of the network can't be underestimated, and you're right. That's where you know, there's a lot of privilege and opportunity and, you know, you need to find ways to extract that. 
and you did. I think it's amazing. And you've been so generous with your time. I'm, I'm so appreciative of you coming on the show. And let's use this as an opportunity to fundraise some more. So what is the best way for our listeners to get involved to help you? whether it's in kind or with financial resources? Yeah, just shoot me an email. My email is zo at emilio.org. Very simple. Just shoot me an email. I'm always available. I'm like in 20 meetings a day. So I'll meet with anyone who's who's passionate about this issue, who has great ideas and, and wants to support in any way. Um, we're also kind of working on figuring out a, a robust way to take in volunteers because as a lean team that ships products really quickly, it's kind of hard to get folks up to speed quickly. But we're working on figuring out discrete tasks that, you know, product designers or software engineers can help us accomplish. But we're always looking for partnerships too, right? We great beneficiaries of Zendesk. They they gave us access to the service completely free of charge, also provide us grants. So we, we benefited a lot from really thoughtful and great companies out there that have been willing to support us in different ways. So if you're a company and you can think of a way that, that Amelia might be able to work with you to expand access to education and communication to vulnerable populations, yeah, just reach out to me anytime. I'll set up a chat and we'll dig in. Awesome. So listen, I thank you for being an incredible servant leader. Thank you. And being a force for good. I wish we had more Zoes in the world. So thank <laughs> you for coming on the show. And I wish you all the best. And I can't wait to continue to track your success. Thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity. And yeah, I'll definitely be in touch. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quitkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of companies, organizations, and people who make it their mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing production team, including Lindsay Hand, Dara Cawthron, Julie Strickland, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show and sponsorship opportunities at brandonpurpose.com. Learn more about our host at aaronquitkin.com.